This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Dan Barber. He is co-owner and executive chef of two restaurants, Blue Hill, New York, and Blue Hill at Stone Barns. I spoke with him on November 5th, 2010, in a live event at Congregation Bethel Zedek in Indianapolis, Indiana. This interview is included in our show, Driven by Flavor. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Good evening, everyone. I am uh, Sandy Sasso, a rabbi of Congregation Bethel Zedek. And personally, and on behalf of my husband, Dennis, I would like to welcome you to our synagogue and to the opening event of the 2010 Spirit and Place Festival. I'd also like to extend a warm welcome to all of our viewers who are now watching on Being's live video stream online. Before we proceed, let me ask uh, all of you to check your cell phones and uh, make sure they are turned off. And let me also ask you not to use any flash photography during the program here in the sanctuary. Well, it seems uh, appropriate to have the opening of this year's Spirit in Place on the theme of food in a synagogue. (laughs) For, as you know, food is central to Judaism. In fact, someone has suggested that you could summarize almost all the Jewish holidays in the following fashion. They wanted to kill us. We survived Let's eat. (laughs) There are many who have made this signature event of Spirit in Place possible. Bethel Zedek, through its Allen and Linda Cohen Center for Jewish Learning and Living, is pleased to sponsor this program in partnership with Spirit and Place, WFYI, and Butler University's Center for Faith and Vocation. We extend a special word of thanks to Patichu Inc. and owner Martha Hoover for invaluable contributions. And also a special word of thanks to Shari Lip-Levine, program director of Bethel Zedek, who attended to so many of the details for tonight. Many others have worked hard to bring about this evening's event. Uh, Their names are in your program. I hope you will take a look at that. Uh, We owe them our deepest appreciation. We are especially proud that this event will kick off our city's participation in the Tap Water Project. Beginning tonight and through November 14th, participating restaurants will invite you to pay $1 for your glass of tap water to help support UNICEF's efforts to bring clean and accessible water to millions of children around the world. Information on the restaurants involved with this project can be found in your program, and we do hope you'll support this important program in our city. As you enter the sanctuary, you should have received a card uh, on which you may write a question for our guests. At some point in the program, you will be alerted to when the ushers will come around and collect your questions. And now I ask you to please help 
me welcome our special guests for this evening, Krista Tippett and Dan Barber. Krista and Dan's bios are in your program, but uh, I will say just a few words about each of them. Dan Barber is the chef of New York's Blue Hill Restaurant and Blue Hill at Stone Barns in Westchester, New York. Stone Barns is a working farm specializing in sustainable agriculture education and a Michelin star restaurant. Dan works to blur the line between the dining experience and the educational, bringing principles of good farming directly to our dining table. He has written extensively on U.S. agricultural policies, and he envisions an ecological approach to cuisine. Dan's thinking and writing led him to the World Economic Forum 2010 annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland. He was appointed by President Obama to serve on the President's Council on Physical Fitness, Sport, and Nutrition. He has received James Beard Awards for Best Chef in New York City in 2006 and for Outstanding Chef in 2009. In 2009, he was named one of the world's most influential people in Time's annual Time 100. Well, you can read lots of accolades about Dan's accomplishments, but no words can capture the experience of dining at his restaurant. I highly recommend it. You simply have to be there to taste it. You also have to make reservations two months in advance. (laughs) Dennis and I had the pleasure of eating at Blue Hill in New York City. Dan is clearly beloved and admired by all his staff, and the food as well. The food is superb. The way in which we think about food has changed, thanks to Dan Barber. Krista Tippett is a journalist, author, and a Peabody Award-winning broadcaster. As the creator and host of the public radio program and podcast, On Being, Krista has modeled a new way of intelligent, in-depth conversation about religion, ethics, and large questions of meaning in every aspect of life. Krista studied history at Brown University, was a political reporter and diplomatic appointee in Cold War, War Berlin, and she received a Master's in Divinity from Yale University. She is the author of a memoir of religion called Speaking of Faith, Why Religion Matters, and the New York Times bestselling Einstein's God. Well, I had the privilege of being interviewed by Krista on the topic of parenting and spirituality some years ago. But I was in the WFYI studio in Indianapolis, and so we never actually met face to face. Seeing Krista today was like encountering a longtime friend. Krista has this extraordinary ability, so rare in our time, 
to listen deeply, to think profoundly about the pressing issues of our day, and to ask provocative questions. There are few interviewers with her breadth of knowledge, her insight, and her conversational skills. I continue to listen to your broadcasts, Krista, and to download the transcripts of your programs. They really are among the very best on radio. Well, this evening is the Jewish Sabbath, so let me wish all of you gathered in this large sanctuary Shabbat Shalom. In Judaism, the home is the small sanctuary and the dining table, especially the Sabbath table, is the altar. Eating is not only about sustenance, but about sanctification. And I can think of no better way to honor this day of peace and sanctification, of community and reflection, than to be part of a conversation between Krista Tippett and Dan Barber. In a world of instant communication, of polarized and uncivil discourse, we are blessed here tonight to be part of a thoughtful discussion that will help us reach a much deeper level of awareness of ourselves and our world. We are so honored and privileged to have Krista Tibbet and Dan Barber at Congregation Bethel Zedek as the opening signature event of the Spirit and Place Festival. Thank you. Right, so I'm having the experience with Rabbi Sandy Sasso that people have with me where I I keep looking at her and saying, so that's what you look like. There's that voice I know so intimately. (laughs) And here it is embodied. And, uh, you know, this invitation was irresistible because it came from Sandy Sasso and and also uh, from Craig Dykstra uh, at Lilly Endowment. And uh, these are people who I hold in great uh, esteem and affection. And, of course, also we love being on the air on WFYI. Um, and, but asked, and since I've accepted the invitation, as I was preparing for tonight, I became very enchanted with what I started to learn about this festival. And, um, you know, Dan, we came up with this title for tonight at some point, Mindful Eating. But really... Uh, what comes, what I think captures you better, what we want to talk about here is this conjunction of spirit, place, and food. And so I'd like to start um, by hearing a little bit about the beginnings of your life, because I, I have understood that there was a connection between spirit and place and food. I was bar mitzvahed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had a beautiful luncheon after the bar mitzvah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 I grew up in New York City, but I, I spent a lot of time on uh, my grandmother's farm in the Berkshires, uh, Blue Hill Farm uh, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. So I worked the farm uh, every summer, um, partly because um, my grandmother was really interested in... Uh, she wasn't a farmer, and um, she wasn't a cook, 
she was a great eater, um, uh, and she, well, you, you know, she was she was also a socialite, a socialite, not social heavy. I don't know. She she was responsible. She was the chairman of the Berkshire Theater Festival, uh, and she was just a sort of champion of the arts in the Berkshires. And and I, I you know, this is a theory I have, so I I can't say this for certain, but I, the theory I have is that she just loved inviting people to the, this home in, at Blue Hill Farm on Blue Hill Road in Great Barrington. It's in southern Berkshire County. It's one of the more beautiful, sort of iconic New England landscapes, uh, open, open fields of pasture. It was, it was a dairy farm for several uh, 150 years. And, and she, she really wanted to preserve the open space. And, and, and she wanted cows uh, grazing, and she wanted things growing. And, and as people, you know, munched on cocktails and whatever, she, she talked about, about preserving this, this open space. I think she felt very deeply about it and about, about sort of this, you know, if there's anything that, that you know, that was, that was, I was marinating in at the time. It was a sort of responsibility um, by way of pleasure, which is, which mm-hmm. is how I think uh, I became interested in food and eventually became a chef. Right, you wrote somewhere um, of that farm. With that kind of beauty comes a responsibility. But did, did, did you I really? Yeah. yeah, you no, did. I, yeah. Did you sense that even when you were? I don't. I actually teenager? don't know because because there was a lot of like. I really love the far- I really love the chores of the farming and the and the farmers and the the kind of like this this like hard physical work when I was quite young and and through my early teen well through my mm-hmm. mid teens really uh, but I didn't like it, you know there were there were also parts of it where it was sort of my grandmother's were like weeding and stuff that she she was sort of these side projects she had always going on that I really resented so it was, it was I was <laughs> there was a, there was definitely ambivalence there and I don't know that I I was just like wow my grandmother and this 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 great Responsibility and 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 agriculture it wasn't like that it was you know as these things generally are I think much much more under the wire and, mm-hmm. and sort of subtle and 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 I'm still sort of figuring it out now probably so were you growing up in New York City yeah when you yeah. weren't spending the summers at the yeah farm? right right so were right. you getting different messages about food that you then had to bring together and balance and play off of that as you moved towards your that's a path really great a question I've never been asked that and I, so I guess my the thing that comes to mind is that my my well my mother passed away when I was very young and my father uh, tried to cook and it was not great it was really bad cook and so <laughs> and 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 like I kind of like stepped in as a very young young child and 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 cooked. Uh, and I, I don't know if I was, you know, I was cooking, well, I was cooking because I was hungry too. I mean, that was part of it. But, but I, but I, th- but I sort of, I became sort of a cook for my father, and I, a little bit my brother as we were growing up. And I, and I, you know, I, I had an interest in that. I mean, he, but, but see now, it was, but when we were backstage, Krista was talking about about having left chicken pot pie for her. For her children, and, I'm very proud and, of this, <laughs> and, and 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 rightfully so. And you said you don't know, you didn't know if I would be so excited about the the sort of she made her own crust for the chicken pot pie, right? Which I thought was really impressive. Uh, actually, I assumed that she had bought the crust but made the <laughs> pie, and so 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 she said, you know, it's something you wouldn't be so enamored with. And and I think that's actually wrong in the sense that like. In, in the sense that it really did remind me of my father, and that he really tried. And so, so, and one story, I'm one one sort of anecdote that comes to mind is just the the he used to cook scrambled eggs um, uh, for dinner, uh, fair not often, but but enough that I. I I grew to like have like my memory of my child is often having these like hard sort of burnt like really <laughs> overcooked eggs 
And, um, and, and it wasn't, see now, what's interesting is that like, I didn't know they were hard, burnt, overcooked eggs until I was sick uh, with, with uh, tonsillitis in, in, in when I was, I think I was 15, and my aunt, who is an expert cook, uh, lovingly prepared food for me uh, from time to time. But it, I remember when it hit, which was when I had this, this tonsillitis, and, and she prepared scrambled eggs whipped over a double boiler with, with, with this French butter that she had gotten at this market. And, and this stuff this slid down my throat. <laughs> and, and I was like, God, this, this is, first of all, this is food. And this is real. This is real scrambled eggs. This is food. This is, this is love, too. I mean, really, I remember the moment that the, I can still taste the eggs sliding down my throat. And now you would say, okay, so I dismissed my father. But actually, I think it took, you know, my father's eggs to make me appreciate <laughs> my ancestors. Yeah. So, so, you know, yeah. I owe a great debt to him for, for this. And, and your kids might feel the same way after their pot pie tonight. I don't know. No, their, their pot pie was really good. Um, okay, so the idea that I grew up, I mean, I'll say I grew up in the 1960s uh, when uh, my parents had just discovered, and as all their friends had discovered, that food could come from boxes and cans, and this was progress. Right. But if we had an idea about cooking and about chefs, it was about uh, working magic with ingredients. It was about a metamorphosis, right? Where you took just enough of this and just enough of that, and you came up with this dish yeah. that, that, that transformed all the ingredients into something completely other. And when I read about how you cook and approach food, it is, it's, it's very different. It's a completely different philosophy and approach. Well, those were the dark ages of <laughs> cooking, I think. So I'd, I'd like to say that I... But even Julia yeah. Child did oh, something right, like that, right. didn't she? I mean... Yeah. It That's was really true. complicated. That's true. And- right. Um, so this idea of, you know, what is the role of the chef? Do you, do you, uh, you know, are you there to transform these ingredients, whether they're good or mediocre, into something that's exalted and, and, and delicious and celebrated? Or are you there, uh, you know, as, as one, as sort of, you know, kind of unplugged and trying to express ingredients in a way that doesn't, uh, uh, that isn't, it was from the chef's point of view, egotistical, where, where the vectors all point at sort of the creativity of the chef. And this is, uh, this goes to the heart of this question that I deal with sort of every day, is, is what, what's, my, my, one of my restaurants is on a farm. So, uh, you know, I work with these farmers, these brilliant farmers, uh, pretty much every day. And so, so I'm learning all about the, the, from seed to harvest. And so the question becomes when, I, when there's a carrot in front of me and I've followed the seed all the way through the composting and the weeding and the, and the, and the, the, the sort of the, the brilliance of the growth. And then, you know, it comes to the kitchen. You know, so what am I supposed to do to the carrot that would be better than what the farmer has done since the moment it was planted? And that it is a very humbling thing, actually, to be involved with that. And, and, and in, in that sense, very spiritual, too. I mean, it really connects you in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be connected, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I think the, what, you're, what you unfortunately grew up infused with was this time where where we're hopefully just coming out of and I'm lucky enough to be a, a you know a part of this this movement away from this disconnection with where your ingredients are coming from and mm-hmm. how they were produced uh, and so there was a time where 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 in a can or or frozen or mani- gross sort of manipulation uh, uh, or extreme manipulation was part of you know gastron- the gastronomic movement 
movement. And, and I think we've, we're, we're blessedly moving further and further away from that. And I'm, I'm lucky enough to be a part of that. And, and I am a part of it in part because I'm so close to the natural process, in which case, you know, I mean, it really comes down to like you're face to face with the farmers that raised a lamb that you're roasting, or you're face to face with that farmer that raised the carrot. And it's like, it's kind of crazy to think that I would be doing something that would be more interesting or more even artistic uh, or more brilliant than something that they have done throughout this process. So in that sense, very humbling. And I think, I think a look at the future of, of better food. You, you've written about an early epiphany you had with an apricot. Would you tell that story? Oh, uh, well, right. That was, uh, well, I was in France, and I, I uh, was working in some very sort of extreme conditions of, of uh, discipline and, uh, and, and rigor and uh, exhaustion. And, and a particularly brutal chef in the south of France, in Provence, uh, who, who I won't name. It doesn't really matter. They were all brutal. This, this, this one... <laughs> This one was like, like really bad, and and so I, um, I, I, um, uh, well, I made this excuse actually that I'm going that on, on Shabbat here I'm going to to admit to, which is that uh, I went to the to the, I was contracted uh, through the summer and. And the heat of the kid, this, this the chef, besides being physically really very brutal, would 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 also when things weren't going right in the kitchen, if someone had done something wrong uh, in terms of how they cut something or overcooked something, he would sh- there was no air conditioning, he would shut all the windows. And I remember it was like one of these like uh, I don't know if you saw the show Get Smart, you know where they're all around you, close close, and then, and you were just like suffocating in this heat. It was the craziest experience I've ever had, and I had, had come from very crazy experience. Anyway, I was so exhausted, and I went to his office, and I said, uh, I didn't know what I was going to say, but I knew I had to get out of there, and I just walked in his office, and I said, my father is sick. And, I, and it was one of the things I could say, only because I, my, my French was pretty limited, and I, 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 and I knew... That okay, I knew, that's not a great excuse. Yeah, I knew I could say this with great <laughs> conviction, and, and I said it, and my father was very healthy, you know, the epitome of health at that point. And, and so he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said I had to go, and that was that. And I, spent, I had one last day in Provence. I hadn't seen Provence. You, you work from 7 in the morning till 1 in the morning, uh, six days a week. I had literally not seen Provence at all, and I walked around before... Uh, uh, my flight, and I just came across this incredible market, and I and I saw these apricots. I had never seen apricots that were blushed, uh, uh, a kind of darkened red. And I I um, I tasted them, and I, you know, it's one of those experiences you have when you taste something for the first time. You never like like eggs. I mean, you just didn't know an apricot could be this. And uh, and so I asked the woman where they were born because it was the only way I could say, you know. <laughs> uh, and and so I remember the experience as part of, you know, what I had missed in France, and I think you know what I regret. I am looking back on it. I had spent more time with 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 what is such a part of French eating, which isn't just the technique, which I was obsessed with, but the whole gestalt of the thing, which is, mm-hmm. which is the, the agriculture and, and the community around food, which is really a part of this that I got for that hour in the market with this French apricot farmer. Right. So there's something so liberating and wonderful about how you talk about um, sustainability and, and becoming more ethical with our food. And this also comes through with, in Michael Pollan's writing and in Barbara Kingsolver's writing. Two, two writers it, um, very right. influenced and, by it. Yeah. And this wonderful, and I don't, know, I don't know why it's surprising, but this surprising link between doing the right thing, doing the ethical thing is also the pleasurable thing, and that sustainability is also about resurrecting flavor. 
Yeah. And the most, the pleasurable thing and the most delicious. So that they're, they're all run along parallel lines. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the beauty of, of what I, I mean, the serendipity of what I do, which is that, which is that, you know, my, my shiv is like, I want to, I want to cook good food. And, and, and it's, it's in, 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 in the pursuit of great flavor. It just so happens that, that you're attached to great ecology by definition. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things that's so axiomatic. You forget, we forget, and I think it's part, part because of what you mentioned. You, we went through this period, especially in the United States, where we were so removed from, from how food was grown and where it was coming from and who was growing it that we forget just the most, the most obvious thing is that, that a delicious carrot, a delicious slice of lamb has attached to it these, these decisions in the pasture and the field that are, uh, that are, that are both thoughtful and, and intensely ethical as well as ecological, that you can't have an unethically raised lamb, uh, an unthoughtfully raised carrot, and have a delicious uh, lamb and carrot dish. It's, it's impossible. Even, even the greatest chefs couldn't do that. Uh, so that's one of the blessings of, of being involved in this kind of cooking, if you call it this kind of movement. The, the, the Michael Pollan, Barbara Kingsolver have, have, I think, identified what is, what is the most exciting social movement in America today, which is this re-engagement re, uh, um, uh, with this kind of food. And, and again, this idea that it runs along these power lines, it, for me, is the most fortuitous and serendipitous uh, thing that could happen. I'm, I'm really blessed. So um, I just want to bring this close to the ground for just a minute. So, for example, this carrot. Yeah. How would you treat that carrot differently? You're, you're also saying it's going to taste different now. Yeah. Maybe the carrot you've grown is going to taste different because yeah. you've been part of its life from the very beginning. Right. Well, I think... But what, how would you treat it differently? What are you going to do to a carrot that you is different from what you would have okay. done 20 so, years so ago? So let's talk about it on a physiological level. The physiological level is, uh, you know, a carrot that's grown in the right way, whether it's on our farm or, or generally speaking, a local carrot, because locality has a lot to do with this in the sense that, that local, okay, carrots, local carrots are generally sold at a local farmer's market, and a local farmer's market is generally... Uh, 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 supported uh, from the from the growing part of it by small farmers and and smaller farmers tend to uh, raise a diversity of vegetables a diversity of carrots different seeds of carrots that uh, that add to uh, you know a biodiverse community within their ecology uh, when you when you have a biodiversity within your ecological sphere even if it's quite small you tend to improve the land that's what another way of saying it's a very sustainable opportunity because uh, a, a, a carrot that's grown in a monoculture, a carrot that's grown one variety of carrot for 500 acres, uh, whether it's in California or Arizona or Texas or Florida or Oaxaca or increasingly in other parts of the world, tend to be cheaper carrots. They tend to be, from the producer's standpoint, from the, uh, from the farmer's standpoint, a bit more efficient in the sense that you can raise this one carrot and uh, uh, have a lot of control, command and control. Uh, you tend to have to uh, do all sorts of amendments uh, that uh, are generally chemically intensive to make a carrot grow in a monoculture over that many acres, whereas in a smaller system that's diverse, you generally can use the wisdom of nature that allows a bit 
of a smaller uh, return for your acreage, but a much tastier and a much more sustainable and a much more ecologically responsible and, and ethically uh, responsive uh, way of growing food. So, this, so, so from a physiological definition, they have two strikingly different carrots. And of course, if you follow those, the, the story of those two carrots, one that's grown in a monoculture and one that's grown in a locally diverse system uh, with, with different seeds of carrots, you generally tell a story of how the world is used, two different ways of using the world. So it, it, it's not a they're, they're small. You know, they, I like to go through the stuff with the smallest doors because you, you generally, I think, learn quite a bit about, about some choices we have in, in the way the world is used. So it ends up not being quite small. But then there's this other part of why the carrot tastes so good, and that, I think, has, connects to, to the restaurant, to, to Blue Hill and to other restaurants that, that can tell a story about the carrot. Because what is great taste? I mean, when I tasted that egg, you know, part of it was was my aunt's cooking technique, but part of it was the the love and the support and the fact that I was feeling ill and this whole understanding of of what surrounds eating. I mean, what what is a great meal? What's your best meal? Well, a lot of people say the best meal is when they're on vacation in Europe or when they were with their grandmother, but but because the grandmother could cook the best or because the French could cook the the, the greatest uh, you know beef they've ever had, but in, but actually. Actually, both those examples lead to your state of mind. You, you were happiest when you were with your grandmother, and you felt, you felt a certain way that you could taste flavors that you otherwise wouldn't taste. And the same when you're out of your, your daily confines of, of, of your working environment. So when, when people come to my restaurant, what I try and do, besides growing the best carrots and besides mm-hmm. cooking them with the best technique, is provide a story. Because when you provide a story, you generally connect people to food in, in a way that they otherwise wouldn't taste certain ingredients. And I think it supersedes what I can do as a chef, even on my best nights. I think I'm a, fi- I think I'm a very good chef. It's not, I'm not false modesty. I think I'm a fine chef. Mm-hmm. But I think I've, I've, my, my thing has become much more exaggerated because of the use of ingredients, which physiologically, I, I, I believe there's a, there's a physiological explanation that, that, that uh, makes them better tasting. But I, I also think there's this human experience surrounding it, this connection to it, that uh, makes it more delicious. You know, there's a great line that Michael Pollan has that um, when it comes to food until very recent generations, um, most of our food choices were, came out of our culture. And that when it comes to food, culture is just a fancy word for your mother. Yeah, right. No, it's a, it's a great way of saying That's right. That's right. And, you know, and, and, and he... That's right. Well, he, he also, Michael, uh, also often quotes uh, um, uh, this, this term called biophilia, which is this, this uh, uh, connect, this sort of natural, innate connection that we need to feel towards nature. And he, he, he extends that to a, a need on you know, part hardwired of us to want to know where our food is coming from. Mm. The fact that we've been, become so disassociated with food just begs this larger point that we need to taste these, these tastes that I'm talking about. We need to know who's growing our food, where it's coming from, how it's coming from, some story, some real, not a false narrative, a real story about that food. And, 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 and when you can provide that, I think you end up providing uh, a, better dine, a better eating experience. And I think to the extent that you've become an activist, it's, it's in this uh, way of linking storytelling to sustainability. You, you become an activist as a storyteller. I mean... Um, Okay, so I'll tell a story that came to mind as I was reading you, that my only transcendent food memory of my childhood, this is sad, but the only transcendent food memory I have is... Uh, Don't say chicken pot pie. <laughs> not chicken pot pie. <laughs> that was frozen. Um, was 
just in a few summer months, we would go to this ramshackle store that was on Main Street, which I suppose now we might call a farmer's market because it was food that came from farms, which was totally disdained most of the time. But the tomatoes there, they were these, I mean, you're all, we remember those tomatoes, right? First of all, they were enormous. And, and one of those tomatoes on a plate was transcendent. Yeah, it was yeah, a meal. Yeah. It was beautiful. And it even took us at, beyond this idea that progress is what we ate most of the time. But, so a lot of us remembering those tomatoes and then being emboldened by people like you have planted our own tomatoes, huh. right? I did it. And they don't taste like that. And I think you also know things that, it, that, that I want you to tell us about. I mean, um, I mean, you've also written that everyone growing their own vegetables is also not the answer to relinking these things that may be very natural. Yeah. Uh, is that a question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm sorry that tomato didn't. I, so, what, so what happened? Was it you? you do you feel well, like you I mean, made I a mistake? I mean, I think we don't know what you're. What oh. you talk about is all the things that yeah. all the things that go into a beautiful tomato. It's not just a matter of me yeah. digging a little dirt right. in my backyard. Right. It's unfortunate because a lot of the seeds of the, the tomatoes that were around in the 60s and 70s have been have been lost to varieties that that even when you buy seeds at a at a at a store that's selling them or, or through the internet are seeds that are generally for even in a home garden are generally for um, uh, larger um, uh, for for greater uh, uh, what do you call it for for greater harvest. So uh, we so, would be so, buying the same seeds that would. You're not buying, yeah. In a large, most cases, yeah, farm. yeah. You have to go uh-huh. back a bit further to get uh, low production uh, tomatoes to because because the, the the greater the production of tomato on the vine, the less flavor because you're dispersing the flavor, the energy from the plant into more tomatoes than you otherwise would. So so in other words, you know, this is a, this is because people because customers of seeds want. A lot of tomatoes in their gardens, and what they suffer, what they get is a good yield, and what they end up suffering from is, is a lack of flavor, which is too bad. So I'm sorry for. And, and I think, <laughs> well, that's all right. It's not your fault. But I also think you're saying that um, as we kind of reconstruct this yeah. ecosystem, um, home gardens are just uh, that, that it's a it's a complex. Array of things that have to be put together, yeah. and also farmers markets are not the yeah, only. Yeah, yeah, the community uh, that 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 needs to expand to expand this movement because because look the the movement and the movement I'm talking about is this local. Or, well, I don't need to talk. This is the preaching to the converted here. Uh, I think. Um, uh, but the, the movement has been wildly successful. Uh, uh, the, the, what Barbara Kingsolver and Michael Pollan and others have, have so brilliantly articulated is this, 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 this exciting social movement in America that 10 years ago when I was opening Blue Hill, very few people were talking about and very few people would recognize. Uh, so this, this 20% climb in farmer's markets every year, the, the, the 15% climb in organic food sales every year when conventional food sales are growing at about 1%, it's very dramatic. I mean, it's really just a, a tidal wave of interest uh, in, in this movement. But the, but the question I, I think you're asking is the right one is, now that we're here, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, you know, where, where, where do we go and how do we 
it's still a very small percentage. I say it's 20% of, of, you know, of uh, farmers' markets are growing 15%, but still, when you're talking about a tiny, tiny slice of what America's eating, we're not talking about uh, a prevalence of this on the agricultural landscape. So how, do, how does this become a bigger movement? And it's, it's the question, I think, as we, as we move on. You know, how do we grow this tent in a way that doesn't rely on you're growing your own tomatoes mm-hmm. uh, because it's a little bit unrealistic, although I think it's smart, even if it wasn't as successful as you wanted. And, and this idea that farmers are going to pack up a pickup truck and, and drive to a farmer's market and, and, and unload and sell. It's, it's a little bit like asking me to, it's a lot of work, and it's like asking me to, to, to prep your dinner, cook your dinner, serve your dinner, wash your dishes, uh, you know, and clean up the restaurant before I go home for night. It's just like, it's, it's not a movement that in, in that sense is sustainable for, for growing a wider audience. So some of the uh, challenges for the future are going to be looking at regional food systems that are complementary, that are, that are looking at uh, 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 utilizing uh, uh, the, the ease of distribution that the big food chain has. Because one of, the, one of the hardest things to talk about with this issue, and it has very little to do with spirituality, has very little to do with some of the things that interest me about, about you and your, your show, but, but, but the thing that needs to be said is that this movement is, is shackled by distribution. It's not shackled by, by productivity per acre, by tonnage. Uh, and one of the great misnomers about the small, you know, one of the things that, that the, the big agriculture evangelists, uh, usually agribusiness, talks about is that the Dan Barbers of the world, the Michael Pollans of the world are nice guys, but they're really not talking about feeding the world. They're talking about doing this little sort of niche thing that when it comes down to it per acre, you couldn't feed America, you couldn't feed the world. And the truth is that, A, that's not true. It just point, point, it's not true on several levels. But at the level that I'm talking about is that, that per acre, my, the farm at Stone Barns, the farm outside Blue Hills Restaurant, is per acre much more productive, tonnage-wise, calorie, caloric-wise, than a monoculture of carrots. It's just that we don't only produce carrots. We produce zucchini. We produce tomatoes. So if you're a, if you're a Walmart, if you're buying into the Walmartification of the food system, you can't go to the Stone Barn Center and buy 500 cases of carrots. Right. You're going to buy five cases of carrots, five cases of zucchini, 10 cases of tomatoes. And from an efficiency distribution standpoint, very difficult, very difficult to make money. So it's in the transaction costs that this movement is, is a little bit stuck. And, and, and one of the challenges for, for the future is how do you look at a regional distribution system that isn't shackled by distribution costs? But it's not what comes off the farm. What comes off the farm per acre, our acreage, and we've done studies on this, is 20 to 30% more productive than even the most intensive mm. monoculture operations that, that pervade our landscape. So, I think something that's really refreshing about your... Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for it. I, 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 yeah. It's one of the big issues that isn't talked about enough, so mm-hmm. I, I like to say it whenever I can, I mean, even if say, it doesn't answer your question. No, no, no absolutely. Um, it's spiritual in some way, too, I'm okay. sure. Um, uh, so when I had Barbara Kingsolver on the show, I mean, Barbara Kingsolver wrote this book about spending a year where they ate... Almost only what they could grow. They basically ate what they could grow themselves. And a lot of people's reaction to that was great. But I live in Brooklyn. Yeah. Or I live in Minnesota. Yeah. And you actually have a farm you, in a, four, uh, in a uh, part of the world with four seasons. Yeah. But I also think it's uh, kind of a relief that you say um, 
that you also like to have citrus fruit on your plate, and that you don't that you do avail yourself uh, um, of the wonderful things that technology makes possible yeah. of modern distribution systems, if you will. I think what's yeah, I said different that to is Barbara, and she wasn't like that psyched about it. And really? I, yeah, a little bit, and like, and and so I become you know, and so I'm not a purist at all. Like I right. really. I, I love citrus. That's, a, that's like my weakness. So, so you can't grow citrus? What I think is yeah. different, what you're doing this new, is you're calling it a luxury, oh, right? Yes. I mean, right. you're reminding right. us that it's not natural to be able to have citrus fruit in New York right. in uh, January. Right. And that's, that, it, I mean, that is something we forgot. We have forgotten. Right. And if you treat it as a luxury, I think you enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think you, you put it in the sphere that it belongs, which is, which is something that's delicious. And a part of the gloriousness of, of, our, of the distribution chain that I was just bemoaning, <laughs> you know, the, the same distribution chain that makes local food so expensive is, on the flip side of it, the, the distribution chain that gives us pineapples and citrus fruit in the middle of the of the winter, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I think it's one of the blessed things. It's the question of proportion, and, and to what extent are you are you taking you know that as as your diet year round, and what percentage are you are you not looking at local agriculture to actually feed you in the winter? And I'm I'm glad you mentioned that we're four season because one of the things I, I really take great pride in for the for the Stone Barn Center farm is that they're just brilliant at. At, at growing, providing calories, delicious calories, in the middle of the winter. And some of the most delicious food is in the winter. I'm just going to give you a quick example. I think it's, it's, it's critical. Uh, it's critical because most of our food in this country from about, it started snowing tonight, so it reminded me of this, uh, from, from now until, until like April and May, uh, you know, 90% of our food uh, is coming from, west of the Mississippi on the East Coast, uh, and, and most of it's coming from California or Arizona or Texas or Florida that I mentioned before in Oaxaca. I mean, that's, that's just the reality. Uh, but, but the problem here is that, that we could be, in these cold climates of which we're sitting now in the Northeast where I am, growing the most unbelievable, for example, root vegetables, and vegetables like kale and spinach and, uh, and other uh, Brussels sprouts that actually thrive in the intensity of the cold. So what, we, what, we are, what, what the Stone Barn Center is, is heading more in the direction of, driven by flavor, by the way. This is not driven by some kind of uh, ethical uh, underpinning, and it's not a moral issue. This is just simply because the best root vegetables have to go through intense freezes to get the sugar, to get the root vegetables that all of us Adore the beets and the parsnips and the celery root, uh, and to a certain extent the potatoes, uh, the carrots for sure. These need to these need to be stressed under several hard freezes, and in fact, if stayed in the ground in the right soil with the right seeds, uh, end up becoming carrots that 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 far far exceed in flavor, in sugar and in flavor, anything that's grown in a monoculture in those warmer climates. There's the quick, quick example. We proved this, finally. Uh, we we uh, grew a variety of carrots called mokum carrots uh, in the middle of February. Uh, we picked them out of the ground. Jack Algier is the Stone Barn Center farmer, uh, Four Seasons farmer. He picked them out, and we, we brought them in the kitchen, and we took a bricks test, a sugar test. We squeezed a little bit of carrot juice on a refractometer, which measures part per billion of sugar, and it me- registered for this mokum carrot 13.8 on the refractometer. Now, for all of you, you should be gasping. 13.8. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's okay. I didn't We're gasp either. I had no idea what that meant. It, may, it means, I've since learned, that 13.8% of this small ca- carrot uh, was sugar, pure sugar. Uh, when I looked up a mochum carrot on the internet to find out what uh, an average uh, 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 bricks number would be. The highest I got was 12, so it was literally off the charts. Now, we just for curiosity's sake took a bricks measuring of a uh, carrot that we use for stocks in the restaurant. It's an organic carrot. It happens to be from Oaxaca that I mentioned. Uh, and we took a bricks test of it. Organic, it's the kind of carrot you, you'd find in like a Whole Foods. Uh, so it's a, it's a high-quality organic carrot. What did it measure on the bricks? 0. 0.0. Oh, my gosh. Right? Undetectable with sugar. Now, why? So, so this just absolutely wigged me out. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew there'd be a difference because I can taste the difference. But did I know that it was going to be so dramatic? And so I finally got to a plant physiologist that I, 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 I sort of fell in love with. He's a part-time poet. And what he said to me was very poetic and, and I think right to the point. He said... He said, the carrot is, is, is converting its starches to sugars because in those hard freezes, it doesn't want ice crystallization. Because it gets ice crystallization, it dies. So, and then what he ended with is that what you're tasting is sweetness, but what the, what the plant, what the root vegetable is telling you is that it doesn't want to die. Hmm. And, and what we have in these cold climates for certain vegetables, and I think they can provide us quite deliciously and quite healthfully for the cold season is something that California and Texas and Arizona and Oaxaca and Florida and all the rest cannot provide. Mm. That's a natural, that's working within, within a natural system for the betterment of, of food. Mm. By the way, there's, there's increasing a direct connection between BRICS levels and, and uh, nutrient density, which is really interesting when you think about right. it. I mean, it makes sense to us. I mean, you just think about it just sort of axiomatically. Of course, you know, the best flavored food would also be the healthiest and the most nutrient dense. But there's actually studies now that are showing that that the highest concentration of, of nutrient density is within is it can be covered in that higher bricks. Which goes back to Michael Pollan's point is that not long ago we were hunter gatherers trying to figure out what was good for us and for our children and healthy. And if we're if we're we're hardwired to go for that sugar and that flavor, we're also going for the best the best nutrient density, and as it turns out, the best ecological decisions for for a farm. Right. Um, okay. We, this is a time when uh, people can gather. If you have questions, write them down, and they will now be collected. And we'll talk for a few more minutes up here, and then we'll be able to take some questions from you. I don't know. I think somewhere in there you said this is not about ethics, but. I, I mean, we're talking about something that's life-giving, that's beautiful, that's pleasurable, that has ethical value. If, I become, ethical a, if value. I become a rabbi, this will become about ethics. <laughs> but those things have ethical value in, yeah, in Jewish right. tradition. It, yeah, true. Look, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm of just the mind that, that, that I, I feel very fortunate that I believe in something that, that from A to Z is rooted in hedonism. It's really a nice, it's, it's a nice thing to be an advocate of, you know? It's like even religion, I mean, especially religion, actually, and I, this is, I shouldn't be saying this on the Bema, but especially religion, you know, you, 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 you to get to some, to get to a, a, a sense of, fulfill, to get to fulfillment, uh, to get to this exalted state, it's often, it is often requested of you to, to give up something. 
to sacrifice. That's, that's uh, part of most religions. If you are calling this a religion, and I, I don't know that I would, but if you are calling this, this is the one religion where you're actually being asked to be greedy for pleasure. More pleasure. Be greedy for it. Because when you are greedy for the best food, you are by definition being greedy for the kind of world, the way the world is used, the kind of world that you want used in the proper way. That's, that's the true definition of sustainability and why I think this movement that I, that I stated so confidently as the most exciting social movement in America today has such legs. People always ask me, haven't you seen the height of this? Isn't this, you know, the crazy, isn't, the, what, you know, isn't this a fad? And they're so wrong. They're so wrong because this is only because once people taste the carrot with 13.8% bricks, you're not going to settle for the 0.0. You're willing to pay for and invest in the kind of agriculture that will give you the flavor and the nutrient values that you want, whether you care for it, whether you're an environmentalist or not. So I, 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 I'm a, like a buying opportunity for this movie. Well, yeah, but you know, there is labor that goes into it. It's just that yeah. you don't... It, it, it doesn't feel as ascetic. I mean, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. Yeah, which is nice, right? Yeah, I, I, I actually brought this. I, we did a show just last week. I did a conversation with the Dalai Lama and three religious I heard, leaders I on heard happiness. It. Okay, yeah. but I want to read yeah. you this. Yeah. I was getting, I was preparing for you, and somebody wrote to us, one of our listeners from Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and this was what she said, responding to that happiness discussion. She said, "I found happiness in preparing food." No other activity grounds me more fully and alights my senses and keeps me in the now. Mincing and dicing soothe me. Reading cookbooks excites me. <laughs> this is my kind of woman. This is your kind of woman. Yeah. But there, there's, it, there's a, you could call it, a, it's a discipline and it can feel like a spiritual discipline, I think. But because, precisely because, as you say, there's that pleasure, there's that good at the end of it. Yeah, I, yeah, but but, but you're saying that she would far. feel. But no, 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 no. I love the quote. But yeah. are you saying you're saying that she would feel this whether or not she was supporting all the things that I'm talking about? No, I'm saying that the work you said that this is greed oh, that okay, you're okay. Ju- that it's just about pleasure. But there's work that goes into creating that pleasure. Right. It's a labor of love. Right, right. I, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of, of Yom Kippur and that you, you, the work you go through during the day of fasting ends up whatever you get when you break the fast. It tastes a lot better than it would if you were eating, right, uh, uh, during a normal three-course, uh, during right. the three meals a day. So, so yes, there's, right, there's, the, there's attached to this is that you have to cook. And for those people who look at cooking as drudgery or look at cooking as as as, as hard labor and, and a total uh, uh, unenjoyment, uh, you know, this is a problem. <laughs> because, because at the root of all of this, actually, and Michael Pollan has said this too, and I, I, I really subscribe to it, is like, it's all about cooking. It's like people always say, well, what can you do for this movement? If, if I live in Brooklyn and I can't, you know, be a Barbara King solver, or I live in, you know, extreme northern climate, and I really can't do anything about, you know, what can one average person do who has all the constraints of either their ecological conditions or their work conditions? And the answer is you cook. Because when you cook, you're opting out of the kind of food chain that's cooking for you. And when the food, when a food chain is cooking for you, it's usually processed, it's usually of lesser grade ingredients, which means that it's usually degrading the environment, which means that usually, because it has less flavor, usually has less flavonoids, which means 
who has, has less health benefits. So all those things are attached to when you're not cooking. When you are cooking, you're engaging in some type of direct communication with a fresh ingredient that, that's not heavily processed. And if you can get that locally, you've done tremendous amounts to, to, uh, to, uh, to give your contribution to the betterment of the world besides a more pleasurable dinner. Do you have compassion for those of us who want to cook more but have jobs and children and life feels hard enough as it is and food is one thing that you can buy in packages and bring home? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, you're not Maybe making not. me compassionate. You don't have much because, compassion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you know why? Because, like, because, because then you'd have to say, you know, because if I said to you that... 25 years ago, if I said 25 years ago, we were sitting here having this, this lovely conversation, and I said to you, you know, we're going to, with all the, the growth, the time spent on TV, we're going to spend another four hours a day on average uh, on the Internet. Uh, and, and you would say, wow, I can't believe we'd find four hours in the day. And I said, not only are people going to find four hours, but 95% penetration of Internet use for four or 4.5 hours a day, wherever it's up to today, average. You would say, that's absolutely crazy. Nobody will spend that time. Nobody has that time in the day. Well, we figured out how to do it. Uh, so the question comes down to priorities: is to what extent is is cooking and eating and 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 I know, all the rest of the things that are attached to that? Uh, to what extent does that become a priority? And and if it is a priority, you make the time, and and it goes hand in hand with the the amount of money you spend. Because what we're talking about, and I don't want to skirt around it, I think it's a big issue. It's more expensive. Uh, there's no question about it. You're paying the real cost of, of growing food. Locally, it's usually more expensive. Uh, and so the question is, again, back to the Internet example or, or cell phone use. 25 years ago, if I said there'd be a 95% penetration in cable television, you all would have said, that's nuts. We have free television. Who's gonna, <laughs> who is going to be able to find $125 a month extra <laughs> And, and, and you all would have said, you all would have agreed with Krista, right? And you would have said, and then Krista, and I would have said, not only that, you're going to find another $125 for cell phone use in disposable income. Everyone is ah, $250 extra, and there's nobody has that money. Well, of course, we found it because we found it indispensable without those things. So can we engage, can we, can we excite this issue around food and pleasure to the extent that people feel the same way about dinner? Tell me what. I'm interested in this link between beauty and eating and that it is actually has historically been a visual and communal as well as just a something about about taste right so when some when a someone is in your restaurant and the plate appears before them what what does it look like I mean the, the whole table what visually what Okay, well, so, so there are two parts to that question. The first is the whole table and the, the experience mm-hmm. of the place. So, so I'm talking now about Blue Hill at Stone Barns, just outside of New York City that's on an old Rockefeller estate. So surrounding the restaurant is 80 acres of pastoral agriculture, iconic New England landscape that's 25 miles from Manhattan. Okay, so very relaxing, very beautiful Rockefeller 
inspired uh, and 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 uh, uh, you know donated uh, land that's just absolutely unheard of in anywhere in the world really. Uh, so so there's that beauty, and then you come closer into the beauty, and you have my sister in law. My brother is my business partner in the restaurant, and my sister in law is the designer. And so she designs everything that you touch and feel and look at. And she's extraordinarily talented. And so you come into this, and I, I, don't, I don't mean she's aggressive in your face with talent. She's, she's of the best kind of talents, which is like you don't even notice it. And you sit down, and, and I think at the table you, you become a part of this farm experience. Through elegance, there's white tablecloths and there's nice silverware, uh, but, she's, but she, she has a, a mindset and, a, and an approach to this that's quite lovely. So, okay, so I've set the scene. So now the, the food comes. And so, you know, on, on what we charge, and, and again, I don't want to shy away from this, we're a really expensive restaurant for sure. You're paying a lot of money for all of this bounty and, 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 and style and beauty. And my plates, compared to what other chefs, now not compared to, say, the chicken pot pie that your children are eating tonight, and I'm not, I'm not demeaning the chicken pot pie, I'm saying my, my food would look more like your chicken pot pie than it would look like the high-end haute cuisine right. that's being played. And, and a lot of people... Uh, a lot of people. I'm, t- I'm I'm looking now at the at the the internet and sort of the the blog postings that I read every morning religiously. But uh, people who ate the night before. But but and so the food is like not ornate and it's you know it's not it's not not beautiful to, to what's beauty. But a lot of people have the a definition of beauty as being very constructed plates of food. So my plates of food generally are are not deconstructed but unconstructed and they look they tend to look. Uh, like I would imagine one of the farmers is standing over me, and often he is one of the two, and kind of laughing when a gratuitous garnish is placed or a stacking of something is placed that, that takes away from the work that they've done, because that's what it does. It takes time to do it. It takes your focus. The vectors come point at me, the chef, the, the stylist and the creator, instead of the, the, the agriculture that produced it. So it's not ugly plates, but I don't think that you would walk into the restaurant and be wowed by the architecture of the food, which, which I'm proud of and, and happy with, but a lot of people find for what they're paying, it comes up a little bit short. But, but, then, what is, but, then, but then the question is, like, what is, what is, what is beautiful, beautiful for this? And, and, and I would like to think the beauty in it is that it connects right to to the farmer and so so but you know I don't want to say that to every you know it's hard to go over the diner well, and say that what do you do look I, I, I <laughs> Sandy Sasso told me that the food she got was beautiful and some writer food writer called coming to your restaurant like a, a spiritual journey so I think it's beautiful and I know my chicken pot pie was beautiful yeah. <laughs> but I, I think what you say also is that um but this is also an essential part of eating. It's it's the ingredients. It's the presentation. It's it's seeing this as something beautiful and blessed and to be honored. Yeah, I have the, the luxury whole experience, right? But I have the luxury uh, of of working both working with my sister-in-law. I mentioned my brother, who's a brilliant businessman and, and can put all, help put all this together. And then and then you know it's much easier to talk about these things on a canvas where there's agriculture surrounding everywhere you look. Uh, so when you're in the middle of Midtown Manhattan, and I know this because I have another restaurant in the middle of Midtown Manhattan with my brother and sister-in-law, it's very hard to talk about these issues uh, because. 
is the way you feel when you sit down in the middle of the West Village and the tables are quite cramped and the, the, the energy is quite kinetic. And so you, you end up having a different experience. It's not bad. It's two very different, different experiences. But I think the agricultural connection, the beauty that you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, is a lot easier to get across when you're in the middle of a farm. Mm-hmm. So it's the landscape in a way. I think it has a lot to do with it, yeah. Okay. Rabbi Dennis Sasso is going to moderate questions. Rabbi, come to the Bema. I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, somebody asked me this afternoon if Dan would be doing a cooking demonstration tonight. I said we don't permit cooking on the Bema, the altar of the synagogue. We did away with sacrifices about 2,000 years ago. (laughs) Well, we've been treated to a uh, banquet of words, tasteful, satisfying, and fortifying. Uh, It's my pleasure now to present some of the questions that have come from the audience, very thoughtful questions. Let me begin with this one. Uh, Rituals involving food are at the heart of all world religions. Is it possible for modern families to embrace again the ritual of the evening family meal? Is it even wise to try? That for me or her? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so, uh, he doesn't uh, have compassion for that. We yeah, already know that. That's right. I, you know, what I would say is like is that is that, uh, and and I don't want to get too too magisterial, you know, too sort of philosophical about it. But I, I wonder if we if we are a little too strict about what our definition of, of, of a, a sort of family meal is. I mean, I think a family meal could take on uh, different iterations depending on where you are, what time of year you're at, uh, you know, even what your, your, your dining room looks like or kitchen looks like. Uh, uh, and I think that it doesn't need to, to fit this, again, this sort of uh, this, this iconic American, uh, what's the painter that I'm forgetting, the iconic American painter that has the fit? Norman Rockwell, yes, oh, no. yeah, Norman Rockwell, of course. So, so it doesn't need to fit that. That to, and that's where my mind goes, and I'm sure a lot of you is this sort of this, this, you know, this, this, this fit structure that that I don't know that works today, and I don't know. Uh, you know my my wife and I don't have children yet, so I so of course I'm speaking very freely. That I, you know, I, <laughs> what do I, you know, what do I know? But so so I can be very dogmatic about it. I I, <laughs> I I think it could take on many forms, and I and I do feel like to get children, and I have a little bit of experience. Just because the Stonebarn Center is is a is a is an education center that that does a lot of work and great work inspiring children about these issues and about just good food and there's just a lot there are a lot of ways up the hill you know some 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 cattle you have to you know uh, drag a carrot uh, along up the hill and other cattle you have to hit with a carrot from behind and get them up the hill and and still other carrots you have to run you know, still other cattle you have to run up the hill and run back down to show them and I think there's a lot of different ways to 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 part of the action of eating and, and enjoying food. And I think, you know, more families who, who, who ask me similar questions have this sort of rigid approach to the family dining that can be confining and the tension can be, can be really in the way of enjoying food. So does that mean it's more sort of, uh, you know, everyone catches, catch can, as my father used to say, which is you take a little bit of food and you go off and you're reading a book while you're, you're eating? Or is it something that's just a bit more informal that, that allows children at certain stages of their life to enjoy food in a way that, that allows them to feel free and express themselves. So, so the answer is yes. I just don't think it needs to be as rigid as we... You know, when answer. you talk about also 
if things be, if we get to this point where things are grown in a wonderful way where they just taste better. Yeah. I mean, we did a CSA program in our neighborhood this summer where we had boxes of fresh vegetables and I actually had a carrot that was incredible. Probably not the 13%, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. you can dip something like that in homemade ranch dressing and kids love it. Yeah, right. I mean, right. we won't have to do so much with our food and manipulate it so much if we actually get better produce right 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 that's, that, that's I mean, right that's i mean jill eisenberger who's the who's the director of the center for for uh, at stone barns tells me that that parents are get she gets phone calls from parents although we get phone calls actually in the restaurant all the time my child brought home this car- this carrot yeah. that he had for lunch and he wants it for dinner <laughs> how do i get it all the time all the time. Yeah. And in fact, I think one of the ways through this is through kids eating this, this kind of food because they're, again, like all of us, but maybe an overdrive hedonist for, for sugar and for great flavor. Yeah. This question came up um, uh, from several members of the audience, and I'll ask it from two different people because they're complementary. Is the idea of food that is carefully grown and prepared only for the well-off how do we nourish this way of thinking for a wider part of the population? And another question uh, along the same lines, how do you expand local healthy food systems to feed low-income inner-city people? Yeah. Uh, so the first question is, is this uh, a movement for the elites? And the answer is that uh, I sound often defensive when I answer this because I feel defensive. It, it has been a movement that's that's pretty much uh, started with with uh, people who can afford to pay for this kind of food. And uh, and do I think that's unfortunate? I really don't because you, uh, again, I looked to, you mentioned Michael Pollan, who's on my mind now, but he, he often says that, that a lot of great movements in this country, including women's suffrage, including uh, the civil rights movement, started with elites and, and ended up uh, uh, becoming mass movements through powerful ideas. And there's nothing wrong with that. It takes a long time, especially in America, uh, generally, gener- generation. Uh, but, but those ideas can be quite powerful if they come in that sense from, from the, the, the top. The, 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 the sort of second and even connected to the first part of the question, I, I would say that, you know, I don't know that, that I, I guess what I would say is that this is, that, that moving forward, I felt, I, I expressed to you how, uh, uh, Powerful. I feel like these ideas are for the future, and that this is really we're at the start of something, not at the not at the the high point. We're at the start of something, mm-hmm. and and that this is going to become a much more universal American universal experience of of wanting this kind of food. I think that way uh, in part because I think the real cost of producing this cheap food is going to catch up to the agribusiness and conglomerates that are supporting our conventional for the food that we eat, mostly the 90%, the 80 to 90% that I'm talking about, the cost of bringing that to market is going to be too expensive in our generation and certainly, certainly by the time our children are our age. And, and by that I mean that, that to produce the food that we're, we're eating today, it's just too environmentally expensive. The, 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 the cheap fossil fuels that produce our food, the water, the, the abundance of water, these ecological services, as some environmentals call them, the free ecological services, they, they're what support uh, our breadbasket. They're quickly, quickly uh, overused. 
And so the food system is built on them continuing these free resources, water to be one of those constant weather patterns is a big one uh, that, that many often mention is that we've had very stable weather conditions over the last 30 years. We're entering into a phase where whether you believe in global warming or not, there's, there's a lot of, of weird uh, uh, global, condition, global climate conditions coming our way that are not going to be conducive to monocultures. If you are in Iowa, since we're near Iowa, I'll mention Iowa, Iowa's 90% in soy and corn. You better have conditions that are conducive to growing soy and corn. Otherwise, you know, you're in trouble when the weather goes bad. So why diversified food systems are going to be the answer to the future? That's going to mean more regional. So so in that, and I think this is upon us. I mean, I think this is a food, a food reality, a reality for agriculture that is quickly coming uh, into the focus. And, and I think that's going to mean that the price parity, the, the price that we pay for food at the farmer's market, is not going to seem so expensive. And uh, I think we're in a huge transition time where, where we're going to look at those monocultures of carrots as frightfully expensive, actually, when you calculate the real cost of food. And, and in real terms, will be, will seem uh, uh, will become too expensive because cost of bringing them to market with more expensive fossil fuels and water and all these ecological resources that aren't going to be available, they are not going to be able to produce food like that. And we're going to look at the kind of stuff that we're talking tonight as part of what we're going to have to do to increase this movement, which is coming. Well, I think this question follows on what you have just said. Uh, It comes out of concern for the Hoosier ecosystem. And it says, I look around at thousands of acres of corn and soybeans and wonder how we can begin to convert Crop production in a state like Indiana, it seems so ripe, so obvious. Well, I did, it, it is a great question, and, the, and, and others have dealt with this issue of corn and soybeans and commodity crops much better than I do. I don't really deal with these, these crops, but I, and they're subsidized heavily by your tax dollars, and so the encouragement is to grow them because there's a market for them and there's an easy distribution for them. Uh, and, and we tend to eat a lot of processed food, of which corn and soybeans have a, have a huge percentage of... of uh, of the of the caloric intake for those, so so there's a real investment in wanting to do that. So converting Hoosier ecology, which I know next to nothing about, uh, uh, I can just say from 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 some type of confidence because I have looked at this issue. The president of the Stonebarn Center Board is Fred Kirschman. Uh, he is the pr- biggest large uh, biggest uh, uh, proponent of what's called farming in the middle. These are farmers. Many of them are in your state that are growing these commodity crops uh, as part of family farms, but are mid-sized farms. They're what called farming in the middle. It's basically receipts, uh, that means revenues, uh, between 300000 above 300000 uh, up to, to 800000 It's huge, huge, what some consider to be about 60% of our farmland in this country. These are farmers that are too, even if they're not growing commodity crops, they're growing vegetables and fruits, they are too big to pack up a pickup truck and deliver it to your local farmer's market. But they are too small to deliver into the Walmartification of the food system because their economies of scale don't work in those delivery transaction costs. So you have this this middle that some of which are producing calories that we would like to, 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 to not eat so much of. And a lot of them are producing uh, fruits and vegetables that we like to eat more of, but that would love to transition to this diversified agriculture that I'm talking about. But they're not a mom-and-pop operation. It's several hundred acres, in some cases out here, thousands of acres. They need government investment uh, to transition away from monocultures to diversified landscape. Uh, that, that t- that's not... 
a farmer who, there's not a farmer I've ever met who wants to go out and spray their fields with chemicals and harvest 500 acres of carrots. There, there isn't, doesn't exist. They're doing it because it's the only way they can make ends meet with the investments they have. We need to, I think, at this point, get more government involvement in switching those, those farming systems to more ecologically diverse, which in the end which in the end is going to be cheaper for them to produce and it's going to be more delicious for so us. So those need political solutions. I do, I do think so. You know, I, I, stay, I try and stay away from the political solutions because I think this is all a bottom-up movement. But when you look at the question you just asked, is you know, how, how are you look at this ecology that we're surrounded by now, we need the investment to get farmers to change from these monoculture operations to diversify crops. That takes money to do because otherwise there's so much failure in agriculture that no farmer with the, the cost that the burdens that they've got, uh, the debt that they're in, are going to do on their own. Well, here's a question from a younger member of our audience. Uh, I don't know if to call it a congregation or an audience tonight. We'll call it both. What suggestions or tips would you have for someone who would like to become a chef? 11-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Uh, the, the, well, I would, I would cook, uh, you know, a lot. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the obvious ones are you know, cooking and reading cookbooks and whatnot. But, but I, I would like to think that that the future of the chef is going to to take the, the ideas that we've been discussing tonight a bit, even a bit further. I think that the role of the chef. Uh, maybe not political activist, uh, maybe not ethical uh, proponent, uh, moral moralist, but I do think the chef is going to be uh, an agriculturalist. Uh, I do think that chefs of the future, and eaters, by the way, are going to be much more engaged in the process of growing food. Uh, if you're in Brooklyn, you're growing herbs on a windowsill. I'm, I'm including you in that. Uh, this is not about uh, the size of your garden. It's about the consciousness and the relationship that you have to food. I think as, as chef, we need more chefs like that, and we, we have a lot of chefs like that. We need more. And I think to be a successful chef in the future, you're going to need to know about your ecology and the workings of the ecology and how to affect the recipe that goes on in the field before you start dealing with a recipe. There is a, there is a really fascinating, instructive, comprehensive recipe that, that good farmers follow in terms of listening to a natural system. And uh, it's complete, and it's, uh, uh, it's one that chefs need to know more about, uh, especially in the future when, when, the, when as arbiters of taste, uh, chefs and foodies, people who like food, are arbiters of taste. We're the ones who need to demand this stuff, uh, which is why I say preaching to the choir, you need to sing louder about these issues because we really need to let people in government, but also farmers, understand that we will pay more and go to greater lengths to get the kind of food that we believe is better for us and better tasting. Here are two questions that I'm going to tie together. Um, why aren't you a vegetarian? Have you made any connections between ethical food preparation and kosher food preparation? Yeah. Okay. It's a great question. Jesus, a great question. I feel like I'm the fifth set with Nadal here. But uh, I, 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 uh, the first question is about why aren't I a vegetarian? My wife is, uh, is not a, a strict vegetarian, but she, is, she is, loves vegetables and would, would just be happy eating vegetables uh, every meal uh, that we eat together. And I'm, I'm also fine with that. But why am I not a strict vegetarian? Why am I not standing up here and saying, you know, eat less meat? Uh, the answer is because I come from 
the lower Hudson Valley, uh, New England. And my ecological conditions are dictating that we eat a lot of meat because we're grassland. Uh, what we grow best, besides those carrots, uh, <laughs> is an amazing diversity of healthful grass for animals. Now, if you are in the game of feeding, say, uh, a, a, a lamb, uh, as I mentioned before, instead of on grain from Hoosier ecology, uh, but on the great grasslands, the diversity of grasslands from the New England landscape, the grasslands, by the way, that built New England, um, that built the dairy industry. They, there's no surprise that there's this iconic landscape that I referenced with my grandmother that wasn't just about building beauty. That was about building what, was, what, was the, what they were taking advantage of, which was cows grazing on great grass to produce great milk. Uh, that same ecology holds true today. There is these iconic open pasture lands I talked about produce the best-tasting meat in the world. And so for me to be a vegetarian... Uh, and, and be a proponent, be, an, be a strict advocate of it, wouldn't be listening to the ecology that, that the land is telling us it, it wants to grow. Uh, uh, so I think one of the futures, if we were dialing back to the young 11-year-old uh, chef in the making, one of the, one of the requirements of a chef, I think, for the future is not to uh, propose a cuisine on the landscape. It's going to have to be listening to the landscape to determine what kind of chef and what kind of eater we want to be. And if you're in, if you're in uh, uh, southern uh, uh, Los Angeles uh, and San Diego and you want to be a vegetarian, God bless you. You should be. You should be. Uh, but if you want to be in, in New England and uh, you, want to, you want to improve the ecological conditions of where you are, you're eating meat. There's no question about it. There is no healthy ecological system that I've ever seen that doesn't include animals. It just doesn't. Because the, because the manure from the animals is a, new, is, a, is a free, free ecological resource that amends the soil that gives you better tasting and healthful vegetables. <clears throat> That's been around since the beginning of time. So to, to say that vegetarians live on this higher plane of ethics... And, and, and I'm not here to, to argue that slaughtering animals doesn't carry with it some weight. Uh, uh, but you have blood on your hands when you eat vegetarian as well, especially if you're in the Northeast, because your food's coming from somewhere. And your calories are coming from somewhere in the winter. And if they're traveling hundreds of miles, in many cases thousands of miles, uh, you are, uh, you are uh, burning fossil fuels to get them there. And generally they're produced in monocultures. And that has a huge cost on natural living systems. They might not be animals that you and I can identify with, but they're insects and bugs and whole types of flora and fauna that are dying to produce those vegetables. That's not uh, an ethical way to eat, I don't think, in the future. The kosher laws, though, is a very interesting question because I've become fascinated by it. I, I have relationships with a relationship with a grain farmer in the Northeast who grows organically in a very diversified uh, a grain system named Klaus Martens. He's probably one of the more brilliant farmers I've ever met. And what he told me is that when he grows, uh, he, he has a big part of his business is growing um, uh, spelt for matzahs for Passover. Uh, and he's strict, uh, strict uh, I think it's glat kosher, it's kosher anyway. So he needs a rabbi at the farm when he's harvesting. The rabbi grabs hold of the combine and walks with him 
on the field as he's now if you, these grain farms are enormous even in upstate New York it's a lot like what you have here thousands of acres and a combine with a rabbi walking next to it has to go a lot slower than it would without which generally makes kosher food by the way more expensive that's one of the one of the issues related to kosher food but what he realized and this and Klaus is one of the more thoughtful and, and intelligent farmers I've, I've met like I said he realized that when the, when the rabbi would stop the combine he would stop it because there was wild garlic in the field. Wild garlic in the field would make the, 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 the matzah tray for, for Passover. So they have to go and pick out the wild garlic. It'd slow down, though, get, get off the combine, pick the little, little collection of wild garlic, remove it, and then start the combine again. And Klaus, not a Jew, by the way, but, but a guy who wants to make money, was so frustrated by this. By, so, so he started researching both kosher law, to realize what, what was it about? Why, why, why is wild garlic, it's in the field, it's natural, why is that considered treif? And what he discovered was that from, from, a, from a, a, a chemical point, a biological point of view, wild garlic was an example of, of low sulfur content in his soil. He had an imbalance in his soil. Hmm. And when he corrected the balance, by the way, by manure, by, by taking extra runs of his cattle through this, through this spelt field, he corrected the imbalance and got rid of the wild garlic. And he made more money because he could go faster on the combine with the, with the <laughs> rabbi. And the quality of his grain was improved dramatically because what the wild garlic was saying was that there's an imbalance here you need corrected. Now, he's given me many examples. I think that's a really good one of of kosher laws that, that seemingly have no reason to them. But of course, if you research them and think about it, they have to be grounded in, in agriculture, in, in the proper agriculture uh, that produces the best food and the best nutrition. Hmm. Sandy, you, know, you and I will sit uh, like this next Shabbat and discuss those uh, kosher laws. LAUGHTER <clears throat> um, Tell us how we can prepare ourselves to come to the table and uh, get, enjoy the experience optimally. And a, a related question, does food taste better when made with love? My hypothesis is that yes, it does taste better. Have you ever come across any evidence that would be able to support this theory? <laughs> huh. What was the first question? <laughs> Tell us how we can prepare ourselves to come to the table to get and enjoy the experience optimally. Yeah. Well, again, I go back to some of the same themes as just like producing food that's delicious that ends up uh, getting you to the table, uh, whether you're in the right frame of mind or not, because you're after the good, good food. Uh, and then I guess the second part of it is, uh, uh, what was the second part? I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot the second part. What was the second part? Food with love. Food with love. <laughs> I'm a very like angry cook in my kitchen, so I'm not the right. Like Are I, you? I, I, yeah, I yell it a lot. It took us all this time to get to that. Yeah, well, it's only because we have a minute left. <laughs> get to the truth. Yeah, I mean, I, I like I yell a lot, and I, I'm very, um, very disciplining with with the cooks. Uh, 
and, um, and a little bit abusive. I mean, I'm nothing like what I trained under. Uh, nothing. But, and it's never physical. But, but the mental is like sometimes really, really pointed. And so, so why am I saying, why am I doing another confessional? Uh, because, because I don't know that there really is this connection between the love and the happiness and smiling and, and cooking. And does that actually make the food taste better? Uh, I hope not, because I'm really in trouble. <laughs> We, we could call it passion instead yeah, passion, of anger. Right. Okay. So we, we've really, I think, mined your wisdom tonight. Um, I wanted to say as we, as we close down that I'm, it's quite fascinating to me that the Stone Barns land was donated by the Rockefeller family. Because a lot of what you're about, you and others, is about reversing the wisdom of rampant capitalism and big business. I mean, so it, it strikes me that that's kind of a parable for this cultural shift in our food life. It's a, it, it is, especially when you're talking about the Rockefellers. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who, you know, Mr. Rockefeller, uh, who donated an extra, I mean, upwards of, of $50 million to make this, this dream come true, uh, said to me something that I, I found I, stays with me. Uh, when the project was done, he said to me and my brother, uh, 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 my brother, again, the business partner, was looking at this, the, very close to these spreadsheets, and he said, you know, a project that originally cost about $8 million, projected cost $8 million, ended up costing $50 million. And he said, you know, when you look at this amortized over 250 years, it's not that expensive. <laughs> now, 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 of course, the cynic in me said, you have to be a Rockefeller to think that way. <laughs> but in my wisdom, which was like the next morning, I realized something that was, I think, apparent to everyone, which is like, there are a lot of Rockefellers out there who don't think that way. Uh, and I'm, I'm, my brother and I are so blessed to be a part of a family that, that consistently, and they haven't always made the right decisions. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here as an advocate for the Rockefeller family, uh, and I don't think even they would be an advocate for some of the things that they've done over the last uh, 200 years. But, but in, in general, they, their decisions are focused on long-term quality for the land and for beauty. And, and in that sense, uh, and, and not to wrap this up into a tight, neat ball, but in that sense, give in many ways, not just at Stone Barns, but in other donated places, uh, a, a, a chance for us to experience spirituality through nature in a way that, that would not have happened without their largesse and their foresight. So we're, I'm very thankful to them. Mm. Um, so, uh, so there is a shift taking place, and even the Rockefellers are part of it. Um, is there something that you're newly passionate about? Is there some emerging chapter of this story that Michael Pollan hasn't yet written a book yes. about? Yes, yes, yes. Tell us. I hope so, because he wrote a lot, and like he wrote it really well. But is there something you know that you're excited about now that's just emerging out of this? Uh, There's two things, really quick. The first is that I think one of the things that's been overlooked in this, this issue that we've been talking about is breeders. Uh, and I've been extremely excited in meeting breeders uh, who, and I'm not talking about uh, bioengineering, uh, genetic, genetically modifying seeds. I'm talking about old school breeders who, who, who at least at Cornell, and Cornell's a land-grant university in, in New York State, that, uh, that had, had an incredible department. They all, all land-grant universities. This is one of the great untold stories 
of America is land-grant universities in every state in our country. And that was, that was a, a government-funded. Uh, your tax dollars went to creating this breadbasket of the world through uh, brilliant scientists who were let free to grow seeds that were regionalized for different areas. Uh, that largely has disappeared in the last 25 years. It's disappeared because uh, universities no longer fund breeders in the traditional way. Uh, they can't afford to, or they say they can't. And so agribusinesses moved in, and they're the ones who are funding breeders. The technology that breeders are, are, are developing are going in the hands of the kind of agriculture that I'm here tonight to tell you I think is dead man walking and, and, and not the kind of food that, that we want to be eating or feeding our children. Uh, and so there is this collection of, 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 of breeders and Cornell, they're like the hippies that came in the 70s that are there and have seeds literally in their, their, their desk drawers that uh, we've been growing now varieties. Jack Algier, the farmer at Stonebarns, grew unnamed varieties of tomatoes, unnamed varieties of onions, unnamed varieties of squashes. They've been sitting for years in the desks of these breeders because no one in agribusiness wants to grow a relatively low-yield squash, tomato, or onion when you can get more yield and more bang for the buck uh, on the higher-yielding seeds. And so, or a seed that can stay in your refrigerator for a week, or a seed that can travel across the country for uh, 10 days. So these breeders, and they are largely retiring, at least at Cornell, are the ones who have a vault of, literally a vault of information uh, that I think is going to be so important as we transition away from the conventional mindset of agriculture and into this more regional uh, uh, look at agriculture, which is going to rely on these, these seeds that, that can withstand the, 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 uh, the challenges of growing locally so, and in a diverse system. So I'm really excited about that. I'm working with Jack Algier with a lot of these breeders and trying to get them to stay on and, and work more with us. And what they say to me over and over again is no one's ever asked me about flavor. Hmm. I say it, I hear it every time from the breeders. I was like, I was like clockwork. It's so weird. No one asked me about flavor. They always ask me about yield and about disease resistance. They're just like, all we have to do is select for flavor. It's like not that hard. It takes a long time. And a lot of them, like I said, are seeds that are in storage that aren't, don't have a market. So we, again, as curators, the 11-year-old chef that's in the making, we're curators for this, and we need to be advocates of it, and foodies as well. And then the second is just the most exciting uh, 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 introduction I had to, uh, to a, um, a doctor, William Lee, who's uh, the head of the Angiogenesis Foundation in, in Boston and in Cambridge. And he's working on uh, uh, researching capillary growths that feed tumors. Uh, not the tumor themselves, but the blood supply that feeds the tumors. So why is that of interest to me? It's of interest to me because Dr. Lee's approach is to target foods that are high in anti-angiogenetic properties uh, that, uh, that literally shrink tumors. Um, he's the leading authority in the world. We have one of the leading uh, oncologists in the world standing and sitting in the front row, Dr. Larry Einhorn, who uh, I am particularly grateful for. But I, 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 in fact, was inspired by Dr. Einhorn's brilliance uh, many years ago to, to when I saw and heard Dr. Lee speak. I, I felt so moved about what he was talking about. It made so much sense, food and cancer and food and this idea that if we eat right, we can actually eat well and starve cancer. And he's on, the, he's on the, the pinnacle of making some, what he says is some really fantastic discoveries. 
what I did when I met him, and I, I had thought, for sure he had thought of this, but I said, all these foods he's identified as being high in anti-angiogenetic properties like parsnips and grapes uh, and certain teas. Uh, I said, have you ever studied how those parsnips and grapes are grown? In other words, is a parsnip just a parsnip or a parsnip grown in the right kind of soil with the right kind of amendments? And he looked at me and said, we've never done those studies. So what we're embarking on very slowly is taking ingredients from Stone Bar and sending it to him and getting a read with those BRICS levels. Because, again, my theory is that, that my own personal wacky theory is that this, this, this high BRICS level is going to correspond to high nutrient density, which is going to correspond to, to the kinds of foods that will shrink uh, capillary growth to tumors. And, and he believes it, uh, and he's a foodie. And so we're going to have a lot of fun, I think, trying to identify these foods that are grown with the 13, grown in the right way, giving you 13.8% BRICS level. Does that correspond with cancer-fighting properties? And his theory and, and mine, for what it's worth to you, uh, is, is that there's a large correlation. So I'm really excited to pursue that. And, and I think we'll see more of that uh, as we move on with this movement. It's a great place to end, that correlation again that's yeah. run all the way through this between what is life-giving and pleasurable and sustainable. That's right. um, and I really want to thank you for making that equation come to life oh, in your work and for you. us tonight. Thank yeah. you, Krista. Before I let you go, I'd like to um, mention at the request of Spirit in Place that Michael Poland will be here Friday, November 12th at noon at the Scottish Rite Cathedral as part of the Spirit and Place Festival. Uh, but most importantly, I would like to, on behalf of all of us, uh, thank Dan and Krista for a wonderful program and conversation. Hold your applause because in a few moments we are going to escort Dan and Krista to, uh, out of the Simon Sanctuary before the rest of us leave, and you can uh, applaud them then as we uh, spirit them to a different place. Uh, there is a patron reception uh, for those that purchased uh, patron tickets, and it will take place in the Shookman Auditorium, which is directly behind uh, the Simon Sanctuary. We ask you to exit through the main lobby and enter the uh, Shookman Auditorium through the lobby. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Marta, Martha Hoover and Patashu Inc. for the patrons' reception this evening. We ask you to remember to turn in your spirit and place surveys to the spirit and place ushers in the lobby. And now, let us thank Dan and Krista for this wonderful beginning to Spirit in Place.